For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm very happy to have as our guest speaker this morning, uh, returning Joan Amaral uh, from the North Shore Meditation Center, just north of Boston. Uh, Joan is a teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, a successor of my Shuso teacher, Blanche Hartman. And um, welcome, Joan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Taigan. Thank you for bringing Blanche into the Zoom room. Um, Hello, Blanche. (laughs) So here we are. I'm very happy to see you. I just want to make sure you know I'm not as much of a slacker as you may think that I showed up for the last seven minutes of Sazen. Did you notice? We at the Zen Center North Shore, and by the way, someone recently asked me, oh, she said, I didn't know you were from Chicago. <laughs> it's not the North Shore of whatever the lake is. The care, is it lake Superior? Sorry, I can't remember. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. I'm obviously not in Chicago. I am on the North Shore of Boston, as Tygen said. And, um, yeah, I... Uh, kind of just lost my train of thought, but I'm just, I'm really happy to be here with you and, um, you know, to, to try to, well, to bring forth the Dharma together. And I, oh, so what I wanted to say was um, we sit at Zen Center North Shore on Sunday mornings. It's a little bit hardcore. You guys are much more reasonable, but it allows me to give two Dharma talks in one day. So we begin sitting at seven o'clock local Boston time. And so I'd been sitting for quite a bit. So I checked in with Tygen to make sure it would be okay that I just showed up for the Dharma talk. Um, And then I kind of just wanted to zoom in a few minutes early just to see who was here and just to have at least a few minutes of sitting with you. It's so interesting in this study of Zoom, you know, the age of Zoom. Here we are. I don't know about you, but as I came in so late into your period of Sazen, I could really feel the stillness in the Zoom room. I could really feel that. I just want you to know that. I could feel the stillness and I could hear the silence. You know, there's stuff happening in my neighborhood. My neighbors are waking up and stuff like that. You know, someone was just vacuuming. And right in the midst of that, it was very silent for those few minutes just sitting with you. So thank you uh, for your practice. And that's precisely what I wanted to just share a few words with you about this morning. Um, It's what we're studying this summer at our practice place. It's what we're always studying, Sangha, the Sangha Jewel, Um, recognizing it, naming it, appreciating it, enjoying it, using it. There's a sense I have that 
here we are in this ongoing pandemic. There are lots of questions. There is, it seems like the word du jour is uncertainty. We don't know how this will go. We don't know for how long. And so regardless, our practice continues. And it's a little bit messy. You know, this is much more messy kind of considering coming out of, well, it's funny. I've been saying this for weeks, but now it feels really different today to say it because of the Delta variant and how, how much that's really coming into our consciousness. I've been saying it's much more messy coming out of the pandemic and going back into physical practice than it was making that clear decision on March 12th to leave physical practice and go into virtual space. Uh, So I appreciate that. I appreciate how much energy and, you know, heart energy, mind energy, emotion, thought, resources of all kinds that it takes to deliberate this question. How do we come back into physical practice with each other? Because even though we're getting really good on this Zoom situation, still, Tigan, I know you feel this too. I, I, I feel some sadness and a little bit of fear about losing the tangibility of Zen practice, of smelling the incense together and feeling the animal bodies next to me, you know, my fellow practitioners feeling their animal presence um, and hearing the bells together and being able to chant together. I, I worry about this the more time goes on. And so, um, and here we are, you know, here we are as bodhisattvas doing our best in the practice of ahimsa, of trying to minimize harm and take responsibility for the ways that we do cause harm. And so for some of us, we're understanding that as stay out of rooms, you know, in closed spaces together, especially as we go into the cooler months, and especially as the variants become more experienced in our world. Let's just stay put for now on Zoom. And so while we're here on Zoom, you know, what are the opportunities? So um, this summer we decided to embark on a series uh, investigating the Sangha Jewel with a sense that Sangha, which we might understand as not alone. Sangha might just simply emotionally mean not alone. In the midst of uncertainty, so what? (laughs) Not alone. And specifically, not alone in our practice. Not Not alone in our practice of awakening in an ongoing way to reality as it's expressed in an ongoing way. So there's great comfort here. And I just get the sense that um, it's kind of an untapped treasure, this Sangha. So we spent some time this summer looking at it and also not looking at it clinically, but actually doing it. So it's also, the study is also in the context of 
looking at the vertical and the horizontal. I feel very Catholic when I do that, the vertical and the horizontal. <laughs> I grew up Catholic. I could say that. Um, but this is, you know, it feels like like things are breaking up quite a bit in our culture, in our world, in society. Things are breaking up. It's pretty clear that we're not going to go back to business as usual pre-pandemic. Delta is showing us that right now. Things are irrevocably changed. One of the other things that I feel like we're really thrashing with in this breaking up is the vertical and the horizontal. What I'm talking about there is lineage and tradition and forms and ceremonies. Now, you talk about Blanche. Blanche and I, um, Blanche was my, my, one of my closest teachers. And um, I used to say to her that I felt that I was more traditional than even she was. I'm pretty strict when it comes to Zen practice in some ways, but even that is breaking up these days. And one of the ways it's breaking up is I'm just in the mood to challenge hierarchy, (laughs) even though I'm the Sangha leader and I'm the founder (laughs) of this practice place. It just feels like in order to really get into Sangha and feel it in order to use it because we need it so much right now, I felt like we needed to do it. So in this Sangha series, we have various Sangha members who are coming forward and sharing their experience of what Sangha is. So to give you some, oh, we call it, I think we, yeah, we call it the name of this talk, Sangha, what is it to belong? Um, So to give you an idea of what some of the things, some of the students have brought forth, one person, John, the very first one to launch the series, his was, I can't believe they haven't thrown me out of this place yet. (laughs) That was the first one. Second one, uh, or I can't remember the order. Anyway, Sangha as an opportunity for silence, for practicing silence, valuing silence. Um, Sangha and self, which I think is just a wonderful inquiry. That ages old kind of um, tension between the individual and community, um, between solitude and solidarity, for instance, between self and other. Uh, Someone talked about ritual and sangha and acting ritual. How wonderful that is when we're in physical space, again, to, to chant with our ears, to, to hear and, and resonate with each other, to harmonize with each other. And we're exploring that on Zoom, how we can do that. And then one person, <laughs> I really appreciated this, the head student, actually, he gave a talk on, he shared an experience for him as Sangha was really the first, a Zen Sangha was the first experience he had of, as an introvert, being able to relax in a group of people. And so I think he called it something like introverts unite, (laughs) you know, solidarity on the cushion or something like this, which of course, Tigan's laughing, reminds me of that motto, anarchists unite, which some of here maybe relate to that. Zen for me is about anarchists uniting. Um, And then next week, someone's going to be um, 
the Eno of our practice place is going to be speaking on um, vulnerability as a discipline within Sangha. So it's been really, really fruitful. And I will tell you the truth. Um, I'm pretty tired personally as a Sangha leader, and I appreciate the mutuality of being able to um, share and and, um, partake in more explicitly the energy of practitioners to kind of take the lead. I like how in our tradition we call our roles Taigen. Some people say Abbot, and and we haven't gone in that direction yet in our Sangha, calling me Abbot. But guiding teacher, guiding I see as neither leading nor following. It is a total practice of vulnerability. Anybody who's trying to be a Sangha leader will relate to this. (laughs) If you just try to lead, that's not going to work. If you just say, okay, I'll follow, of course, that doesn't work. There has to be some kind of mutuality there, some kind of sensitivity, some kind of reciprocity. So that's interesting, and that is what we're studying. So, and it's also an important time where we're entering our 10th year as our practice place, in our practice place, Zen Center North Shore, kind of checking in with practitioners. What do you think we're doing here? What do you think this practice is? What is the Bodhisattva way? Oh, by the way, I love on your website, I love the art that you now have on the homepage. It's the Chicago skyline. It's the sun, I think, which is an Enso. And I'm just curious if that might be the sun rising in the West, <laughs> which is that, that beautiful, powerful saying, even if the sun were to rise in the West, still the Bodhisattva has only one way. No matter how bad it gets, only one way. Anyway, I appreciate if the artist is here, I appreciate that work. It's very beautiful as an introduction to your practice place on your homepage. Um, so, so this, this question of Sangha, what is it to belong? You know, so speaking a little, I've spoken a little bit about Sangha. We just chanted this morning as maybe you chant from time to time, the triple treasure, the taking refuge in, in the three jewels of Buddha Dharma Sangha which I understand to be um, awakening to reality with each other. That's what I understand to be taking refuge in the triple treasure. And Sangha in particular, uh, every morning we chant, I take refuge in Sangha with all beings, bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance. And that's, that's just, that's very beautiful. Um, Bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance is how we might understand taking refuge in Sangha. Some of you may have a doubt about that, you know, that you're dealing with many hindrances and maybe it doesn't always feel so harmonious Maybe it does somewhat on Zoom because we don't have to interact with each other as much, you know, step on each other's toes as much. And that's one of the great tragedies of Zen Zoom (laughs) is that we don't get to bump into each other as much. But for the time being, I guess we can appreciate this. 
um, that the, the pressure's off just a little bit there. But I, I wanted to just talk about this bringing harmony to everyone, this harmony, this question of harmony. Even though we say bringing harmony to everyone, we could understand that as because of our practice of shikantaza, of just sitting, that already is bringing harmony to each other. Just like I shared with you, just what I felt. You brought harmony into my life when I cannonballed into your zazen period. And there you were, Buddha, 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 Buddha. There were 17 Buddhas bringing harmony into my life. And then the practice itself, because that's a little bit maybe external of our the impact of our sitting on others. The internal experience of this harmony, of harmonizing with ourselves or harmonizing with the totality of life, just the whole shebang. Um, I, I just recently in the last couple of weeks, and I just I feel like I've been thrown back into beginner's mind. And I am so grateful for that. I feel like I'm rediscovering Shikantaza because after over a year of sitting on Zoom, we we just started to explore some sitting in physical space in what we're calling the Welcome Garden. It's a little bit of land where we're growing food um, and where we're also sitting Sazen on Tuesday and Friday evenings. And we sit in a circle and there's only a few of us. Sometimes once it was just me and a bunny or the bunny who's been getting in and eating all the lettuce. And I, and, and, and it was so fascinating at first. It's kind of sad to just be sitting there by myself, but I was immediately corrected. We're never sitting by ourselves. It is nice to have other human beings to sit with, but watching this bunny was Somehow the bunny found an apple core. There was an apple core. And I guess it was a little bit of a test for me because as I was sitting, I must have had my eyes closed for a period of time. When I opened my eyes, there was a bunny only about 15 feet away. And the bunny clearly did not know that I was there. (laughs) I had been sitting for about 20 minutes or so. And so without the bunny knowing I was there, I just watched this bunny eat this apple just completely absorbed. And then I went like this very slowly, but it was hilarious because I saw the bunny kind of like turn just slightly. And I guess they have peripheral vision. So it didn't look at me head on and just froze, but like up like this, like there's someone over there. (laughs) Where did that person come from? And so then we just, sat together for the rest of the period. It was, it was fascinating. And then other people have come and, but what I'm getting at with this, this bringing harmony to everyone through our sitting, experiencing harmony to that we bring to everyone. We experience with everyone and we receive from everyone has been the experience of sitting with the bunny of sitting under the canopy of the maple, you know, sitting in the the deep green grass of New England. And yes, with the ants who find me and start to crawl up me, you know, sitting under that sky that in New England, it's 
it's like, you know, it could change at any moment. Sometimes it's just vivid blue. And sometimes there are these beautiful fluffy clouds that go by. Sometimes, you know, these storm clouds suddenly appear and then it has started raining. You know, but as it said traditionally, when mind is is viewed as sky, that no matter what's crossing, sky is just sky. And so to get to experience that under the sky has been tremendous. And so what I've begun to understand as our practice of stillness, and I saw it in a brand new person who came to sit with us, um, saying to her, okay, you know, as we come into this posture, let's not try to keep still. Let's just open up to sky. Let's open up to maple. Let's open up to the bunny who may come. Let's open up to the tomatoes growing behind us. Let's just open and receive all this gorgeousness and see if we can just enjoy it. So Shikantaza, man, nothing to do with, you know, this effort we talk about, this great effort we talk about, nothing to do with forcing anything or even trying anything. Dogen Zenji, as you know, I'm sure Taigen's telling you all the time, says that the zazen I speak of is not meditation practice. It's not a technique. It's simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. I was so grateful to be able to experience that again under the maple tree. So this is all sangha. So what, what I'm talking about at this point is not just the sangha of human beings, but the sangha of all of life the sangha within which we awaken, the sangha with whom we awaken. And, you know, I would also say the sangha we awaken for. So the second part of this is what is it to belong? I want to share this poem with you. Maybe you've heard it before. I've, I, I love this poem and I haven't read it in a while because it started to feel cliche. And maybe you've all heard it many times. I can't recite this poem without invoking Paul Haller, who introduced me and so many others to the poet David White, and who um, probably has led workshops with him. I don't know. But this is David White's famous poem, The House of Belonging. And I rediscovered it recently. How many here know this poem already, The House of Belonging? Okay. All right, Reuben. All right, Reuben. So this is going to be just zazen, just breathe in the words, breathe them back out again. Well, everybody do that too. But especially if you've heard this before, maybe you'll hear it again for the first time. Okay, David White, The House of Belonging. I awoke this morning in the gold light, turning this way and that, thinking for a moment it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart, and I thought, it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room, 
It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought, this is the good day you could meet your love. This is the black day someone close to you could die. This is the day you realize how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of light, the tawny, close-grained cedar burning round me like fire, and all the angels of this housely heaven ascending through the first roof of light the sun has made. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. Thank you, David White, and thank you, Paul Heller. Um, so, you know, having read that, and it's deeply moving to me every single time, the um, contrarian that I am, I'm from New Hampshire, not just from New England, but from New Hampshire. I balked at my own topic today. You know, what is it to belong? Even after being so deeply moved by this poem, or especially being so deeply moved by this poem about belonging. I've been thinking in the last 12 hours or so, including in the night, all throughout the night, I thought the question is not, what is it to belong? The question is, what is it to take my place? That's what I want to offer you as practitioners. That's what my message is this morning. And I admit, as a Mediterranean, I can go on and on, and I even get lost in my own Dharma talks. But that's the message. In Sangha, what is it to take your place? To know that you already belong. You know, I realize as a white person in terms of racial justice, it's not so simple in some ways what this welcoming is. It's not quite that we welcome someone, we, <laughs> we who are already established practitioners, that we welcome new people into something that's already happening. And this is the realm of what I'm talking about with it's all breaking apart most wonderfully. It's not people quite that we welcome new people into what we're already doing. That's language of white supremacy. There's creativity here. There's subtlety here. There's bravery here. There's beginner's mind here. The fact is, we don't quite know what we're doing. <laughs> and within that, there is, I will say, and this is the strict part, there is one thing that's never going to change. Shikantaza, Zazen, never going to change. So, you know, I, I'm going to end in just a minute on a note of 
you know, David White. I always love Tigan. I love it when you cry at the conferences and stuff. And sometimes in Dharma talks, because in that moment, like when I was just crying in that moment, it's like there was something that unhooked my heart that broke open my heart. What was that? When you cry, notice what happened just before. So for me, it's that line. Well, it was kind of the whole poem, especially Ruben, knowing that, that you'd heard it before and that others hadn't. It's that line, um, this is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long <laughs> to learn to love. <laughs> it happened again. This is where it has taken me so long to learn to love this is where I want to love all the things that has taken me so long to learn to love. That hits me right. That goes right in beginner's heart. So I was kind of brought to my knees a little bit when I read this poem again, and I started to think about um, the ways in which in Shikantaza, having just, you know, this ode to Shikantaza, our egos are so sneaky Mara is always lurking around the corner, which, by the way, I understand for me anyway, is, is just our self-doubt or our arrogance, you know. <clears throat> so with Shikantaza, the shadow of that is, you know, just some kind of amorphous, undifferentiated something. I don't know. So I've had a check-in with myself this week, and I want to offer you this check-in. It's a bit of a list, so be ready. (laughs) Um, And I don't mean it to be like a checklist, like a to-do list, because one of the great offerings of Shikantaza is precisely, you know, non-doing. Just again, as I said, opening, receiving what's available to help us what's already here helping us like the support beneath us the ground beneath us whether it's the sofa the bed the chair the yoga mat the zafu underneath all of that is mother earth right here allowing shikantaza allowing this to just be experienced and appreciated and enjoyed that we're already supported but sometimes And this is one of those times for me this week. I needed a a little bit of something more tangible. So here's the the pep talk I'm giving myself within Shikantaza this week. Slow down. Drop into my body and my senses. On the cushion and off it. Here's my favorite one. Don't argue with reality. Especially, yes, Tigan, for those of us you know, in the work of social, racial, environmental justice, justice. Pay attention to loved ones. When good things happen, pause. How does that feel? When bad things happen, pause. How does that feel? And then I guess connected with don't don't argue with reality this is a good one again for activists let go of wanting things to be just so how to do this how to be in and this is the great opportunity forging traditional formal soto zen practice 
with, you know, the great opportunity and American Zen relevancy of our time. What is the great opportunity of Zazen? You know, Zazen for the sake of Zazen and also how it might be in service of justice work and upholding, just basically upholding our fledgling aspirational democracy. Pausing here to just say, just as it's true that, um, you know, have you heard that the most important job in a democracy, does anybody know? Have you, have you heard this? What's the mo- most important job? What's the most important role in a democracy? I'll give you a hint. It's not the guy in the White House. It's not the president. It's not an elected official. It's citizen you. That's, that's the same thing as the most important job, the most important role in a sangha. I feel Tigan is <laughs> not the teacher. I mean, you know, we need the teacher and, you know, we, we need the Eno and the Doan and thank you for ringing the bells and all that. But the most important job is the assembly and the Sangha. For those of you, if anyone here is brand new today and you don't know what the hell is going on, you're the most important thing here. You're refreshing our beginner's mind. That part of us that shows up without really knowing why and stays put anyway, that is priceless the one who doesn't give up, the one whose mind is open and fresh, you know, and it's not a coincidence that oftentimes it's connected with a certain amount of desperation. It's okay. So the next one, there's, I think two more. And this is also one that hits me squarely. Pay attention to the good things in my life and the warmth they give me. To not get lost in the struggle. To not get lost in the pain. Pay attention to the good things in my life and the warmth they give me. And the last one is just basically, stop fighting, Joan. You'll be dead soon. Just love. So for those who don't like lists, for those hardcore Zazen practitioners among us, and maybe next week I'll be back to being one of those. All this means is just keep sitting. Okay. That's all I have. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. I'm um, that was my attempt at uh, exploring a little bit with you. Sangha. What is it to belong slash take your place? Damn it. <laughs> no more arguing with whether or not you belong. No, you're needed. We need you. Take your place on your cushion. Plant yourself on your cushion. Plant yourself in that soil of your zafu or your sofa, you know, and allow yourself to plant all the way down to trust that Mother Earth is right there underneath all that concrete, ready for you, ready to receive you, and allow yourself to grow up from the Great Mother up through your long spine, lengthening your spine so that your heart can shine all the way through the crown of the head and beyond. Don't, most of all, don't believe that your body ends here at the brain. (laughs) Know that your body connecting with the energy body in Sazen, allowing the tailbone and the crown of the head to connect you between heaven and earth. Okay. Grounded into the infinite. All right. Any questions, any comments, 
any complaints, as beloved Kaz Tanahashi would say. I just want to thank you so much, Joan, for uh, the celebration and the mystery and the vulnerability of Sangha. Um, so um, please, uh, comments, uh, responses, questions, uh, please feel free. If you are not visible on the screen, you can go to the participants uh, link on the bottom and there's a place where you can raise your hand there. But if we can see you, uh, David, uh, Ray, maybe you could help with calling on people. So, um, Sangha, yes. please. <laughs> and if for any reason you, you're, you're not able to, um, to, to be heard, you can send me a chat, um, I also want to say I love it when um, it's just kind of a sharing. It's not even a formulated thought, but it comes from, you know, that precisely that place of not knowing and being here anyway. So um, especially if it doesn't make sense, we'll bring it forward. I don't see any hands. So I just want to say, um, yes, Sangha, this exploration is so key to everything that we do in practice and uh, sharing in Sangha and the mystery of Zoom, <laughs> as you were talking about. And, uh, you know, it's, it is, it's strange and disembodied. And at the same time, there are people from at least five different states here on the Zoom window. And, and Eva's in, you're still in Sweden, even Eva? <laughs> so um, people come from all over, and here we are in this, whatever this Zoom Sangha is. Um, so comments. Um, Did you say Eva is from Switzerland? No, she is in Sweden. In She's Sweden. Also sometimes in Chicago, but for the, through the pandemic in Sweden. Oh, cool. Okay. Wow. What time is it there in Sweden right now? It's 10 to 6 p.m. Not so bad. <laughs> Not so bad. <laughs> um, Joan, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I, I'll, I'll take you up on your invitation to do, to do a, something that's sort of more of a share. Um, first off, it's so wonderful to to hear you talk and know that you're breathing New England air. I lived in, in Massachusetts for a time and, and my granny was a New Englander and I, I would love to hear her, you know, acerbic, you know, sharp, sarcastic <laughs> New Englandness again. I loved it so much and that contrarianness. Um, so I, I would love to hear more. The thing that you said about hindrances really um, excited something in me because um, I like to think that I'm super nice and welcoming and, and, and all those things. And then I catch a glimpse of my prickliness and thin skinnedness and, and, and so on. I had, a, I had a wonderful experience of that yesterday when I was finishing a run and using a Samantabhadra uh, mantra. And I saw somebody just, you know, cross my path and I had a negative thought about them. And I, and I had the thought, oh, I just dissed Samantabhadra is what I just did. Mm. And, and it's really interesting to realize that. And so I, if, if you if you have more to say about 
you know, those hindrances of, 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 of people being together and stepping on each other's toes and bumping mm. into each other. Um, mm. I would love to hear more about that. Thank you, David. Uh, what a wonderful practitioner you are being out on a run. That seamless practice, you know, invoking Samantha Bhadra in that way. Well, okay, so my my understanding of the hindrances is the actual Sanskrit <laughs> word is it's more accurately translated as covering. Now, this is talking about the five traditional hindrances, which are um, greed or grasping and my personal favorite because it's so encompassing. The second one is ill will, aversion, anger, resentment, <laughs> frustration, irritation. <laughs> we can get really juicy in there. Okay. And then the third one, I always forget the order. The third one is anxiety. Fourth one is kind of sloth and torpor. Wonderful. Um, kind of, I love the imagery of sloth and torpor, kind of lethargy of body and mind which is kind of like a, a giving up kind of energy sinking mind, you know? Um, and then the fifth one I find the most fascinating, which is doubt. It's understood traditionally to be um, maybe the most corrosive because it can erode faith and practice. And so in all of these, my understanding is a Zen practitioner is there's no, pl- no place that practice doesn't reach. So all of these are practices so um, what is the practice of your particular hindrance at any moment? And then back to this question of them being coverings. And this is where it hits me again, right between the eyes or right in the gut. My list that I gave you is, you know, so anger, for instance, or the second, the covering of the second hindrance, anger. I see that covering as protecting a more vulnerable state. You know, and I totally get that about myself. And I think that's why I'm so moved with these, these words like love. Because as a person with a lot of energy, um, I can get into a lot of trouble. You know, and and so when I when I think about it's it's funny, I'm studying this right now. When I think about anger, I actually think about love. I don't think about hate and love and I don't think about hate and anger. I think about anger and love and Taiken, this may be connected with the justice work that we're doing. Um. And, and this is this is a trick, and I know I'm, I'm really going off, David, and I, I hope this will respond in some way to what you're asking, but there's a whole debate about this question of anger and hate being the same kind of energy. Like some people say the three hindrance, the three um, poisons are greed, hate, and delusion, and sometimes they're translated as greed, anger, and delusion or confusion. But I don't see hate and anger as interchangeable that way. And we recently had a, here in our practice place, we, we had a, a, a visit from Dr. Larry Ward, who maybe some of you know, he's, he wrote America's Racial Karma. And he delved into this a little bit and also doesn't see those two as being interchangeable. So in some ways, anger can, you know, 
as a practice. And we have to be very careful because anger is a powerful energy. And as we know, it can be destructive. We know that that's kind of like the the disclaimer. I have to do that for liability purposes (laughs) as an upright, you know, as a, as a, a sanctioned Zen teacher, (laughs) I have to say that, you know, and I want to tell you that there's a lot of, there's a lot of possibility, I feel. There's a lot of opportunity within anger if we can minimize the shaming around it and the paralysis that happens because of it. And again, I think it's a I think it's it's so much embedded in white supremacist culture. So oh, okay, yeah, David, thank you. I'll get to you in a second. Um, so so for this reason, when I look at my own personal life, and you could talk to my partner, <laughs> he'll tell you. When I get really angry, it's that something is out of alignment, something's off. And a lot of times I'm not being skillful in expressing that anger. But for people who are willing to hang with me, I think I'm ultimately redemptive. (laughs) Someone told me, someone told me that I was difficult. What did they say? Difficult, but rewarding. And I want you to know that my partner said, Joan, you're difficult and rewarding. Oh, So if you can hang with me, like eventually we see that this is actually about love. This is actually about caring and about, you know, we need to make a shift here. Can we do this together? It's kind of like an intervention, you know, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that I know what I'm talking about necessarily. It just means, Hey, something's happening here. Hey, something's happening here. Can we figure this out together? So part of my anger, David, is about, and part of the practice of anger, I think, as a hindrance, not only is it a covering for a deeper, you know, more vulnerable state, like sadness and fear, it's also, you know, there's an energy, an energy specific to anger that's about, you know, I think anger is purified, is wisdom, it's discernment, it's putting the sword down and saying, no, this is not okay. It's boundaries. Wow, I feel myself getting... This is where I feel like I'm a Baptist. <laughs> I'm actually a <laughs> Baptist. One of our board members is a Baptist, actually. Um, anyway, I, David, I hope that helps. I want to make sure that we get to the next question. And I'm, I'm happy to see David's hand up. David Weiner, 723. And then Paul. Let me unmute myself first. It's interesting you're talking about anger and... Uh, I remember many, many years ago when I was part of a gestalt psychology, you know, therapy group. And uh, they looked at anger as projected fear. So when am I angry? What is it that I'm afraid of? What is it that is triggering in me some, something that, that brings out the anger is really something inside of me is afraid. And what do I have to draw closer to in order to let go of the anger? So, you know, to run, like you say, you know, to run to our fear and confront it and be with it. And that will be the release of the anger. It's not that anger is bad. It's, it's just something that's going on inside me that I'm afraid at that moment. And it's one aspect. I don't think all anger is like that, but a large part of anger is like that. What is it that I'm afraid of that gets me so riled up I have to react in an angry way? Yes, thank you, David. So that's a beautiful expression of how we can practice with this second hindrance. 
back to your question, David Ray. Thank you, David Weiner. <laughs> okay, we've got a scramble here happening, but I did see that Paul. Hi, Paul. Uh, hello. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm glad to see that uh, that Blanche is, has nurtured such a uh, such a wonderful practice leader, and um, I I don't really know you that well, but uh, I'm very glad to see that you're that you're still using some of the uh, terminology from the 60s, like uh, sun rising in the West and uh, chant with your ears. Those are very familiar familiar terms from the early days. Um, also, I see a little uh, brother David Stendhal Rath that be creeping into your into your uh, your approach, but uh, but he was also a great teacher and somebody that I that I enjoyed working with. Also, anyway, I just want to congratulate you on your on your energy and your and your vigor and your emphasis on shikantaza, which I think is is very important to, to keep the concept of shikantaza. Uh, in, in the forward, because Shikantaza leaves nothing out. There's nothing outside of Shikantaza. So I think we, we get too often, we get carried away thinking this is the real thing and that's not the real thing, but Shikantaza includes everybody. Thank you, Paul. And you can't fool me. I know your last name is Disco, not Bisco. <laughs> <laughs> So, Paul, I want to say to you how affirming it is to, I mean, I know you're in this sangha, and it's terrific, this through line. What a jewel you are to be here practicing with this sangha. This through line through all these decades, you know, David Chadwick is is another one, but you're super visible. I think maybe, you know, day in and day out practicing with the sangha, it's, it's really affirming as we go forward with this question, you know, I think one of the reasons maybe many of us love Zen, even if we do call it a religion, is because it's not deadening, it's not dogmatic, it's not fundamentalist, it's alive, which means it's it's constantly, you know, with whatever it makes contact with, something shifts. And precisely because at its heart, there's something that doesn't, so that there can be a kind of confidence to just meet what what there is without, you know, I was going to say without meeting a wall, which is what, of course, we do in our practice of shikantaza is meeting the wall. But there's that kind of flexibility that I think has everything to do with maturity and confidence. And so I appreciate your words of encouragement to me. Um, and I'm very curious about your invoking uh, Brother David, that I'm curious because I've been doing a lot of multi-faith work. And for those who don't know Brother David, he was he was a Benedictine monk, but just kind of like Paul's last name. Some people called him a Zenedictine <laughs> monk because he practiced Zazen. He had Zafus in his um, over there at the new Kamaldoli Monastery. Uh, so I'm I'm very curious, Paul, if you want to say anything specific uh, or if it's just kind of a vibe that you're feeling in me that where you see Brother David. Uh, no, I'll know. Uh, uh, um, uh, Brother David and, and uh, Vanya Palmers uh, yeah. were, and myself uh, did a uh, did a temple, built a temple in Puring, uh, Austria together, which was an extremely Catholic part of the world. 
Uh, it was so Catholic that if you didn't go to Mass, they wouldn't give you your mail at the post office or sell you groceries in the store. That's how Catholic it was. Anyway, but he said, I can explain any Buddhist any Buddhist uh, uh, concepts and, and or any Buddhist uh, theory and, and Catholic concepts. So he was, he was our interface between Buddhism and Catholicism. And uh, his, his, his basic teaching was gratefulness, of course. That was being grateful. Which, which you mentioned a number of times. That's why I, why I evoked his his memory. Um, anyway, it's it's uh, with uh, I spent quite a great deal of time with him, mostly mostly in Europe, not so much at Newcomaltly, although I did spend some time there. But uh, it's it's that that and in Europe, Catholicism and Buddhism blend together quite 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 a bit. Um, there's there's many many. Zen teachers that are also Catholic priests. Um, I'm a little more of a purist in the in my Soto Soto Zen attachment, but I I see the value in it, and I'm and and I'm interested to see how this will grow in the future of Zen Zen in the West. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Paul. And and this is the, our second encounter, so I'm very happy to be getting to know you. It really is a a joy and an honor. I mean, I sat in that Zendo for 13 practice periods, that Zendo that you built that was temporary, <laughs> I heard. You were at Tassajara for 13 practice periods? Yes, I was. I was one of the remedial ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, the other thing that's happening here that's, that's interesting, and I hope this is not too much like insider talk, but Paul's one of your Sangha members, so I'm going to just say it. You know, you mentioned Blanche, and then you also mentioned Brother David, and then you mentioned, you know, his gratefulness practice. Blanche, toward the end of her life, was was on his mailing list, and she would read to me every day the, the little email that she got from him around gratefulness from his gratefulness.org um, mailing list, I guess. So he was deeply meaningful to her in the last years of her teachings, and when she was actively studying and teaching on loving kindness. So thank you for making that connection. Anybody else have a Tygen? Oh, and then Dylan. Yeah. So just uh, briefly before Dylan, um, I didn't know that you were a Catholic, but you know, now it's so clear. Uh, Me? And, uh, yeah, you said you were a cat. You were raised Catholic, right? I was. Why is yeah. it so clear? What? A, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, oh invoking, invoking Brother David, um, uh, who, for people who don't know, Brother David was on the board of Zen Center at one point. He did practice periods at Tassajara. He used to visit from from Kamaldolese, uh at Tassajara. Anyway, um, yeah, there's there's something about what you were saying about the the settledness I, I don't you didn't use that word but the the quality of sangha is is so important for us to appreciate and it also means change so you know with the pandemic and with zoom and whatever else is coming <laughs> um, and all of the difficulties we face in our world uh, it's all changing it's all changing Everything's changing. And so how do we do that? And how do we appreciate Sangha in the middle of this? And then there's, and then there's this, um, in California too, there are a lot of uh, uh, Catholic priests who are very familiar with Zen. Anyway, um, 
So just thank you for that and for yeah. uh, invoking the, the, the aliveness and changing of Sangha. Yes, Tygen, I'm laughing because I want to share with you in front of everybody that just before getting on the Zoom with you all, I was brushing my teeth <laughs> and I was I had the thought, Boy, that guy was really right. That Buddha guy was really right. <laughs> Everything's changing. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> okay, Dylan, please save me. What's yeah, your another question? another Massachusetts person. Hi, Dylan. Oh, yay, Massachusetts. Okay. So I'm going to be Dylan's voice because his audio is not working. Here is okay. his question. It says, Hello, Joan. I grew up next door to your temple on the border of North Andover and Middleton. So first of all, thank you very much for bringing my old home into the Zendo today. I visited New Hampshire many times. I'd like to ask you about Sangha in the context of the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking today that Sangha is the living function of each of the Four Noble Truths. First in my mind, that the reality is the reality that things are a little out of whack or that life is difficult is the first aspect of our practice that brings us together to practice through time. I also very much enjoyed your story about sitting with the bunny. I'm always working on this project of opening up to the ways life and transformation communicates all the time. Anyway, my question would be, how would you see Sangha as an aspect, or not, of the Four Noble Truths? Wow! Thank you for that essay, Dylan! (laughs) Thank you so much for going to the taking the time to write all that out. I appreciate that, David. Thank you for being the interlocutor. Is that the word? <laughs> um, so it's really funny you mentioned that, Dylan, that um, about the Four Noble Truths, because I did have a moment while I was speaking. You know, I do have notes here, but I, I realize that for the most part, I think I have them so that I don't go off on a total tangent. But a lot of times, you know, there are different directions that I go in that I didn't think I would. Well, and one of the directions that I almost went in with making this connection around personally this week, this question, like, don't argue with reality, stop fighting, just love. And then David White's, this is where I want to love all the things that has taken me so long to learn to love. Um, knowing that this is a mixed group, just in case. So when Dylan brings up the Four Noble Truths, what we're talking about is the first truth, that there is there is suffering, you know, there is suffering. And my the Jewish members of the Sangha say it's very affirming for them <laughs> to know that, that, that it's brought forward. It's not like something that there's not supposed to be, like there's not supposed to be suffering, like there's a problem with that. No, <laughs> it's difficult to be alive in human form. So in the second noble truth is that there are causes of suffering. And this is where, you know, there are different understandings. The one that I'm thinking about these days around the causes of suffering is clinging, you know, being, being stuck in an eddy, <laughs> like being stuck in fixed notions of who I think I am, for instance. That's a source of suffering, being stuck in a a notion of who I am. So the second noble truth is pointing to that stuckness, that clinging, clinging to a fixed view. Then the third noble truth is one that that I'm really feeling and where I was going to go, Dylan, today and talking about the cessation of suffering. That it's possible to end suffering 
And this is, I think, for me, this stop fighting, just love. And then, of course, the fourth noble truth is, is and, and a Muslim practitioner with us, and Paul, maybe this is to, to respond to you in what I was saying about multi-faith work. Uh, we've, we've had Muslim practitioners, and there's this one man in particular who said that he felt that, that Zen practice was going to make him a better Muslim. But one of the things that he, one of the reasons he said that was true for him was because he felt that Zen Buddhism was the only religion, like all the religions can talk about love, but Zen Buddhism is the one religion in his experience that shows you how to do it, how to love. And you might say that the fourth noble truth is that, the eightfold noble path, right livelihood, right speech, right view, right mindfulness, right action. So, um now, Dylan, was that the question was around the Four Noble Truths and Sangha, you know, and I, I, I think, well, so I answered that from a very personal point of view about really connecting right now with the third noble truth, um, not being so fixated on the struggle, but um, giving some space for the cessation of the struggle. The word that, that um, when I was training at Tassajara, the Tanto used the word thrashing (laughs) so that's been embedded in my consciousness forever the thrashing that I do internally that causes all kinds of problems to just allow that you know just to know peace k-n-o-w to know peace and I guess I would say that just as Blanche at the end of her life was teaching loving kindness um after being such a and Paul knew her and Taigen knew her um, after being such a kind of, um, I mean, her, her, she had very up the wazoo as my teacher, my other teacher, Darlene would say she was very almost masculine in some ways in her expression of Dharma. Um, but toward the end of her life, she was really turning toward loving kindness. And I saw that to be a kind of, kind of, um, you know, kindling, an acceptance, a self-acceptance that she was finally kind of coming to terms with about herself. You know, for instance, one of her, her biggest uh, problems, questions, koans in her life was dealing with the fact that she was born a girl. She, she competed with all the, the, the heavies, the male figures at San Francisco Zen Center in the early days. And that kind of carried through. And I'll say as a young woman practitioner when I first entered San Francisco Zen Center I felt that coming from her I felt her kind of rejection of me as a young woman and so our relationship had so much to do with kind of settling (coughs) there's that word again so so with me too I'm implicating myself in this I'm not like gossiping about Blanche no we're all in this together in this practice and this as David Chadwick says, all bozos on this bus, <laughs> all bodhisattvas in this boat on the sea of samsara or ocean of enlightenment, whatever, whatever your day is, however your day is going. But anyway, my own particular, you know, this, this thing for me of turning toward, you know, what I notice that I'm teaching, that I'm starting to teach more right now is what I really want to learn. It's that it's trusting peace. 
especially because I know I'm going to, I'm going to keep being in the streets. I'm going to keep engaging in my community. I'm going to keep, we're so close. I feel like things could really shift finally. And I know Tygen, you were there in the sixties. This must be so frustrating for you. Here we are again, you know, so maybe I'll be saying this 30 years from now, I thought it was going to shift in 2021, but still, you know, so what I'm here and this is what my life is right now. And so how, how can I, like, I feel that this settling into trusting peace is going to be vital, critical for the ongoing work that I want to do around justice. Dylan, I, I, I hope that responds in some way. Thank you. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I see people are logging off. Maybe it's a beautiful day wherever you are, and it's time to go out and play. But I, I just want to thank you so much for your practice and for your your presence. I just want to say that we still have a little bit of time. So I, oh. want to, I mean, <laughs> okay. if you do, Joan, I don't, maybe you have sure. to. Sure. I just, you know, I, I guess I'm sensitive to seeing people go. But you know what? Well, some people have to go. But there's some people here and some people who we can't see. And I really want to encourage you as part of this morning of exploring Sangha to um, just express whatever you, you know, have whatever you feel like and uh, whatever comments or questions or responses you have to Joan or to Zoom or to the world or to our struggle to uh, make this real. So anyone. And Stephen, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. (laughs) Anyone? Hi, Deborah. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'll speak. Um, I was in a sangha for about fifteen, uh, let's say, twelve years, and it ended. And for me, it is. It is. I truly. It became part of the triple treasures in the most deepest way. Um, I during that time I had lost my husband due to cancer, and it was just being with the people and it was the diversity and the, as you mentioned, it's like um, taking sharp edges and rubbing together. It's the most profound sustainable part of my practice. And that's what I miss most at this time is that we're not in that, you know, the sharp edges rubbing rubbing together. That is the most profound practice to me. It's the most alive part for me. I love the Dharma. I love the, you know, the three treasures, but um, I just found working with the challenges of the individuality of each of the people, their understandings, um, sitting together, that phenomenal uh, opportunity of, of Zazen. It, it's just a powerful thing. And I hope as we, if we ever do return face to face that people, you know, sh- may share that wonderful aliveness of Sangha. So I just wanted to make that comment. Thank you. Deborah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, um, I used to tell one of my, my teachers in the early days, um, when I arrived at San Francisco Zen Center and loved it. I just, I, it was like a duck taking to water. I loved it. But I, I confessed to her, Buddha Dharma, no problem. Sangha, big problem. <laughs> I, especially when I moved in. No, but it, it wasn't really a problem before I moved in. Before I moved in, I thought, oh, these are really cool people and they're so interesting. and They're so enlightened, whatever. And then I moved in and then that's when, you know, things really got real. Um, and I think that, um, what else do I want to say about it? There was a, a person who 
one of the students who shared over the summer in, in the Sangha series that we're doing, he titled his, this is, the, this is one of them that I didn't include because I, I couldn't quite remember what he said, but it, he called it um, Sangha Tales from the Dark Side. <laughs> <laughs> and he also co-facilitates Recovery Sangha. So he's in recovery. And so he's very familiar with the whole realm of 12 step meetings and, you know, how that can be. And, 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 you know, I just, I think that it's, it, maybe this is back to the question of the hindrances, you know, of an anger and all the other places where we feel shame, you know, like the dark emotions. Anger is one of those dark emotions that can be so shaming and so paralyzing where the conversation just stops where if, if it could open, interesting things could really start to happen and, and insights and, and risks, taking risks in terms of vulnerability and, and really getting in there with each other and really being revealed and being released could really begin to happen. So I think that that's what he was pointing to, like sort of honoring the dark side, that, that Sangha is not all warm and fuzzy for a lot of people. It's very difficult to show up. And I really want to express appreciation for the people who don't have your, your video on right now, for whatever reason, it could be technical stuff, but it could also be that it's just, it's too overwhelming, you know, or it's too invasive or too intrusive or something. And I completely respect that, that you're here. And for those of you who are willing to share a little bit, um, you know, I, I, I can appreciate the effort that that takes. So, but I, I think there's also a request in here that I'm making, <laughs> you know, given my own trajectory of what, you know, God, I'm in a confessional mode today. Maybe that's what you're seeing, Tygen, as Catholic. It's really funny. <laughs> but when I look back on my training, my practice life at San Francisco Zen Center, I think one of the regrets I have in Dokusan and practice discussion is I didn't ask enough questions. I was really focused on wanting to prove something on knowing I was, I was focused on wanting evaluation. You know, the question is, am I okay? That was the basic question. Am I okay? I just wanted that, that affirmation. And at the same time, having said that, it's like, well, that's where I was. So that's fine, but that's not where I am now. And, so maybe I'm throwing that out there to you in the context of this using Sangha to really fathom the opportunity that Sangha is offering you and to use it to the best of your capacity right now where you are. You know, we, is- have, we, we have on the Han, and I'm sure you've seen this, it's the message universally on, on, on the Han of every Zen temple. It call, it's what calls you to the Zendo with a sense of urgency, hitting that wooden block that says, great is the matter of birth and death. Life is fleeting, gone, gone. Awake, awake each one. Do not waste this life. What is it to waste this life? How do we waste our lives? What is what are some of the ways that we waste our lives? I think one of those ways is withholding our brilliance or withholding our delusion. <laughs> Whatever as as because no matter whether it's brilliance or delusion, if we can make it an offering, then it's in the service of connection. It's in, in the service of deepening sangha. 
Hagen, you were starting to say something. No, just one thing you said brought to me that I want to say to everybody here that you're okay. It's so important that whatever uh, hindrance, whatever, you know, messy stuff is part of who you is, uh, you're okay. And the proof of that is that you're here and we're in Sangha. But the challenge is, you know, in this Zoom world and whenever we can get together, um, how do we support each other to um, be Sangha, to rub against each other in some ways? And one of the things we do at Ancient Dragon is that lots of people give talks, not just the priests or the you know, teachers, but... Uh, you know, and I want to continue that. And mm. uh, anyway, it's it's really this great koan of Sangha now in our time. So um, anyway, thank you for bringing that forth. Yep. Thank you, Ty, again. Howard and then Eileen. Yeah, thank you for your wonderful talk. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying about um, just like Shikantava and Zazen are not confined to the formal, very formal practice of sitting on the cushion. Um, Sangha is also also not just confined to this very formal sense of a Buddhist community that, you know, in which we've all practiced together, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been, it's been really, um, one, I have an interesting uh, sort of experience of sangha recently. I, um, my, my, I, I, my partner and I, we've had a cat for uh, there's one cat for um, about seven years now, I think, uh, and we just introduced a new kitten into the space, and it is requiring all kinds of new patients, all kinds of revisiting what habits that we have forgotten are, um, a lot of cultivating awareness about what we assumed about who we were as a unit and how this space functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, and, and, you know, and it's, and it's, it's both profound and silly because this is how it is all the time. It, but we just, usually we don't notice until there's a larger jolt, right? Which is why I think, you know, we will get these jolts through things like retreats and sashims because mm-hmm. there's such a radical shift from lay life um, that when you were gathered in a room with, with a bunch of people, suddenly, yeah, you, for some reason, this, this, this the way someone pours the tea for you is annoying for some reason. You don't understand why. And you can really pay attention to that and see how that shows up in different places and how Sangha is sort of created and destroyed and recreated and, and over and over and over again in tiny little moments. Um, and I was reminded, you know, I didn't used to, I, I, I understood this in sort of like a cute way. Um, I, I guess is the best way to, to describe it. And I, I've only appreciated this much more over time. Um, I used to practice in the quantum tradition. And so I read a lot of Zen Master Sun San stuff. And he had this um, really great description of, of Sangha as, as together action. Um, and likened it to a, a bunch of potatoes um, in a pot. 
uh, bumping against each other until all the dirt falls off. But it has to be, it's, you can still do it one at a time. That's still valuable. Um, uh, It's still valuable, but um, it's about doing it all together. It's about having the community together. And it it does involve bumping against each other. It does involve um, uh, 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 the the sharp edges and, 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 and dirt. Uh, getting into the general atmosphere in order to get clean. Um, and which also reminds me of, of, you know, the Lotus growing from mud. Um, and just because Ava has asked the kitten is, is great. The kitten is doing just fine. Uh, we're all still learning. <laughs> and if, as long as we, you know, keep being aware, we will always be learning. <laughs> but yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joan, for that. You're welcome, Howard. Thank you for speaking. Um, I I was thinking as you were speaking about, you know, practicing together, the opportunities practicing together. You know, I'm thinking about, because we could sit Zazen, yes, on our own, um, but it's such a a wasted opportunity. That's only like maybe what we would say, 30%, (laughs) something like that. Because there is something, especially for Americans, Americans, you know, to give over to a greater purpose. I was speaking to a bunch of veterans in our hometown, in, in our town right now, where there's this thing called homecoming this weekend. There are all these events, picnics and barbecues and fireworks. It's very New England. And they had a veterans event the other day. And I was talking to this one man who is a Vietnam veteran. And we were talking about meditation And we were talking, I was saying to him that there isn't, in some ways, there's not such a great difference between, you know, you could, you could like say, hmm, should I join the military or should I join a Zen monastery? Because there's so much similarity. There's structure, there's discipline, there's a purpose greater than yourself. Um, And, and I think there's a real opportunity especially in a, you know, a sashim or even just an all day sit, that schedule, that non-negotiable schedule is so freeing. You make one choice and that's it. The only choice is to sign up. And then it's like stepping into the river and the schedule just carries you. And that's the importance of the bells. I don't know if you guys do this in your practice place, but two bells means it's going to be another kinhin and then another period of zazen. One bell means, oh, yay, it's time for service. And then it's meal time. <laughs> and you don't need to have any voice telling you that. It's the sounds. And, and this is what you're dropping into. And it's just carrying you. And that's so freeing. I mean, we know how tyrannizing too much choice is. It's not freedom. So um, that's something that, that I'm, I'm really trying to stress around Sangha. Or, and, and, you know, and I do think it all comes out in the wash, you know, people who, whose entry point is Headspace or any of the other apps. Hey, why not? You know, it gets them thinking about meditation and even trying it. And then I think people do eventually find on their own sometimes that there's something missing that they want you know, and even me, I found that out, that Buddha Dharma needs the Sangha to flesh it out. That's just how it is. I want to make sure, since we're at 1230, that Eileen has a chance to, to speak. And, and I want to thank Eileen. So this is part of the wonders of Zoom. Eileen is joining us from New York City. 
Oh, yay. Same time zone. Actually, I'm in I'm in I'm in Western Massachusetts <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so that's the wonders of Zoom too, right? Um, so I was. Just, uh, I, I I have a tendency to focus in on footnotes, but the I and I think this is more of a question. Aha, that's another thing I like to know and all that. So the relationship between delusion and brilliance. Nothing like a, what the therapist would call a doorknob moment, right? Uh, uh, and I'm thinking of, well, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the bringing out and up of delusion and getting to see it. And, and anyway, I could, I could go, it's actually a book. So um, any, anything you could say on that subject, I would love. I mean, it instantly brought, brought forth brilliant artists and and brilliant thought and where and and is there a fine line between delusion and brilliance um and the dis the disillusioning <laughs> anyway um and, and and the brilliant moment that that comes with that or comes as a result of exploring that um and i have no idea what i'm saying but it was yeah. it was really uh intense enough for me to write it down and put on my videos so i'll give it back to you if that's okay it is a question sort of <laughs> i love it i love it i mean thank you this is what i was talking about earlier when i said please just bring yes, that's, it what I, that's what i was responding to that was it <laughs> so i feel completely met first of all thank you for that <laughs> we had a meeting a true meeting so and then second of all i just want to ask it was funny, but I don't know exactly what it means. What is a doorknob moment? Oh, that's something my therapist, uh, yeah, was always uh, giving me a hard time about. Is when you're about to leave, it's like the end of the session, and you come out with the thing that you should have been talking about in the first place. Got you. Um, yes. It's like, oh, this is the really important thing, and then I'm out the door with the poignant thing. <laughs> I love it's, that. Yeah. It's interesting. Tigan, that reminds me of that that old Zen story and maybe others know it too. I can't remember the characters if it's Dershan and someone else and they're speaking for hours and hours and hours. Someone, a monk is visiting. I don't know if it's another monk or a master, you know, but they're visiting and they're talking, talking Dharma long into the day. And then nighttime comes and it's time for him to leave. And he lights a candle. Yeah. And then it just as he's about to leave to go out into the dark, the other guy blows it out. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that, but that's what came up. It's in that same spirit, Eileen, of what you're doing, which is not from here. And this is so precious because here we are we've been talking for an hour you guys I've worked up a sweat I debated whether to put my fan on and I was like no it's too loud and now I'm like I'm ready to go swimming but um yeah this is maybe our last interaction for the day on this in this moment we have together and I just how beautiful how perfect to end on a non-conceptual note I mean even while using language and I think it's bad. That's that's the response I'm going to have back to that brilliance and delusion. I, I can't remember what the, I remember saying it, but I can't remember exactly the context of it. Mm-hmm. 
but let me try out this thing. I never get a laugh on this. I've been saying it for years. I think it's hilarious. Taigen, it's about prajna. How we say prajna is wisdom beyond wisdom. But I think that wisdom is spelled W-I-Z-D-U-M-B. <laughs> it's practicing like a fool, like an idiot. It's, you know, not, not overvaluing. It doesn't mean to be smart, to have an intellect, you know, to think. We were talking about this this morning. The brain secretes thoughts. It's fine. It's okay to be smart. But what else is going on in this human body? Tygen, you use the word mystery, I think. That, for me, is religious practice, is, you know, not trying to explain everything away. That's not what I'm trying to do today. I'm not trying. If I've explained anything to you, I've failed. (laughs) You know, if I've left you with a little bit of fire of inquiry, I'd call that a success and we can all go swimming. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank you very much. It's really nice to meet you. And it's so nice to meet all of you. You guys, you're the hardcore ones, man. We've been going for, do you guys do this? Like you go this late? (laughs) Sometimes. But another translation for prajna is insight. It's not wisdom. It's just like seeing this immediacy of, oh, okay, delusion, brilliance, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, but then also, you know, if we're going to say that, it's also Norman. I like how Norman Fisher translates it as understanding because that whatever I'd have a problem with because that feels a little bit like that. There's, a, there's a, a compassion or a warmth even to that, even though a lot of times we, we differentiate wisdom and compassion. So I would... I would want to add a little, it's not like whatever, right. <laughs> not like whatever. Um, exactly. But this, this, yeah, this intuition, I mean, everything about, I mean, maybe so this, this wisdom, and again, not just wisdom, but wisdom beyond wisdom, not to stay stuck on wisdom, but a kind of embodied wisdom, a kind of, which could be a kind of trust, which brings us back to what Tigan said earlier, um, repeating something that I had said, that question, am I okay? The answer is yes. I am okay. You're okay. A little sweaty, but okay. It's not just understanding. It's also undersitting. <laughs> Underbowing and understanding. <laughs> Thank you, Tygen. Who's going to get the last word? <laughs> David Ray, uh, would you please... Um, Give us our closing chant, and then we will have some announcements and an open yes. discussion for whoever yes, wants I will. to hang out. And much as much as I would love for our skulls to resonate together, I must mute everyone because otherwise it will sound very strange indeed. So now all are muted, and I am sharing the screen. And we'll chant the uh, repentance verse three times, and then the metta sutta. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, 
born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit, So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.